Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm your host, Darren Leslie, and I must first admit that I'm super excited about today's episode as I was delighted to speak to the one and only Josh Goodrich. Josh is the founder of Step Lab, where he hosts his powerful action steps, is an English teacher and a former multi-academy trust professional development lead. Josh is also a self-proclaimed coaching geek and I was so excited to delve into his insights on instructional coaching throughout this podcast. I begin by posing Josh his own question. When we talk about instructional coaching, what do we mean? Then we explore the difference between directive and non-directive instructional coaching. And some listeners may recognise that as being the difference between Paul Bambrick Santoyo's See It, Name It, Do It model and Jim Knight's impact cycle model. However, there are nuances between those that make them similar in many of their mechanisms. We then explore this idea of black blank canvas instructional coaching. Before moving on to discuss this distinction between novice and expert teachers, and Josh beautifully summarises his thinking, where he um, re- recommends that we perhaps drop that kind of terminology and just focus on on developing teachers as experts and getting them to change their practice for the better. So then I asked Josh how we can ensure that instructional coaching is responsive to a teacher's need at the point that they need it and ensure that the porridge is just right every time. So we then move on to define what Josh calls in his blogs responsive coaching and we discuss the knowledge needed to be a really truly responsive coach and then the mechanisms that make up Josh's responsive coaching protocol which begin with developing situational awareness because our classrooms are incredibly busy in complex places setting goals does the teacher want to change in this area of practice because let's be honest if you don't want to change you're probably not going to then the developing the insights do we need to give the teacher knowledge that they perhaps don't have or does the teacher should we already have that knowledge then we focus on building an action step that then will help improve their practice and then the key part of josh's responsive coaching protocol is this idea of habit building removing the old habits and installing new habits through the use of deliberate practice and if you're interested in deliberate practice i would recommend going back to a previous episode with Catherine morgan and sarah cottingham where we really dive deep into this idea behind deliberate practice i hope you enjoy this podcast and take a lot out of it i certainly did and before we dive in please remember that if you want to support me in the ongoing work of the Becoming Educated podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. Now, without further to do, let's dive right in to listen to my conversation with Josh Goodrich. Uh, Josh Goodrich, thank you so much for coming on to the Becoming Educated podcast today. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. No, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. We're going to try to dive into a lot of your work um, around instructional coaching and the things you do with Step Lab. But before we get there, can you share a little bit with uh, the listeners about yourself and your career in education to date, please? I sure can. Uh, I did the Teach First program in 2010. Um, it was kind of, well, didn't, didn't necessarily 100% want to be a teacher, but I was a bit stuck uh, at the end of university and took like one too many gap years. And, you know, did, and then my wife had done, did the Teach First program in 2007. 
And she was, she told me that she suggested that I give it a go. And I'm, I'm incredibly glad I did because <laughs> now I feel like I couldn't possibly do anything else. So I did that. I taught at a school in um, North West London called the London Academy for four years and um, was pretty crappy at teaching at first. <laughs> Spent two years really not knowing what was going on. I sort of tried to figure out how to do it well, um, to somewhat, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. T took over a job as ITT coordinator. So um, that's looking after other trainee teachers. Specific, like the school I was in took loads of teach first. It was always like 10 to 15 a year. So looking after those guys in my third year as a teacher. And then I was there for another two years. Then I left and went to an international school in Thailand, for, which was very nice for two, <laughs> for two years. That was good for a couple of reasons. First, after kind of pretty intense teach first school teaching experience, like, you know, working for like 15 hours a day, it was very chilled and easy. Uh, and, uh, you know, di different, you know, different sort of, you know, teaching kind of m way more advantaged kids, which I wouldn't want to do permanently, but, um, you know, it was a different experience. I also got to like loads more time and I really got stuck into educational research, including like learning about instructional coaching when I was out there. Uh, so, and, and that kind of sent me down a path. And then I came back and uh, a school called Oasis Academy South Bank, which my old, um, someone from my first school, the deputy head Carly had set up while I was away. That was a kind of startup school with only year seven mm -hmm. and year seven and eight. So she, we were talking when I was out there and she kind of offered, offered me and my wife a job. Uh, so we both came back from Thailand and worked there. My wife being the head of science and I was head of teaching and learning there. And I was, and then I did that for a couple of years. And then I took on a role as head of teaching and learning for the Oasis Trust uh, two, two years after that. So then I was teaching at Southbank four days a week. And I'm an English teacher. And then I was doing this head of like, essentially rolling out instructional coaching across the trust of 53 schools. And I did that. And then even more recently, which is long, long and torturous. Even more recently, I, I kind of was doing this powerful action steps. I made this powerful action steps thing to help me make instructional coaching work in my school and then across my trust. And it just started being a bigger and bigger thing. And I was, I was just getting a bit, my time wasn't able to be stretched across like teaching, leading teaching across the trust and trying to do this, this tool which schools wanted. So I've since then, I've kind of stepped out of the classroom almost completely. And I just do this powerful, this instructional coaching tool right now. Um, I'm looking to kind of get back into schools, but at the moment it's just, just instructional coaching. That's a, such an interesting, interesting journey from um, you're starting at London Academy to leading on the, being the ITT coordinator to the international school in Thailand and then back to, a startup school, heading up teaching and learning, and now what you do now. So how have you found that transition from being in a school all the time to now working on the powerful action steps for <laughs> percent of the time? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like exactly the same as going from really intensive school environment to international school, where initially it was just a massive sigh of relief because like you can get back some semblance of like a, a decent <laughs> social life and work-life <laughs> balance right um so that you know and then and then pretty you know after a while you really start to miss it so, so where where i am now is again it was great and like you know i spent 12 years of teaching just never going out in the week because <laughs> i just i thought i'd just be too knackered yeah. You know, just finished up and you're like, oh, I could go and see my non-teaching friends or I could watch three hours of TV and then go to bed. <laughs> it's, it's no way to live. But I mean, that was just me. There's obviously loads of teachers who are really good at managing that. But so I, so I, it was great to be doing just powerful action steps and step love for a bit because, um, 
you know, could just do so much other stuff and you, you can do so much in a day when it's just, when you know you're not like having it broken up by the things of being a teacher, like teaching lessons and stuff. Yeah. But more recently, I'm really looking for, it's just, it gets a bit, it's just a bit like, miss the variety, it gets a bit boring. Yes, yes. I totally understand that. I totally understand what you mean about the there's there's tired and then there's teacher tired. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely different. So um, you mentioned uh, your journey there and then your opportunity to, to engage with research and instructional coaching and your name is very much associated with instructional coaching in the United Kingdom. Um, I've spoken with Jack Tavasley Marsh and, and Dan Hudson previously on my podcast and your name came up on both of those discussion so I felt like it was just right to come on and get get your take and your ideas so can I, I'm going to try and steal a few things from what you've written to try and guide the, the discussion and the thinking to help listeners grab an understanding of, of instructional coaching so just start with um, I'm going to steal your own question that you pose in, in part one of, of your excellent series of blogs and ask you Josh when we talk about instructional coaching what is it that we mean it's a good question. <laughs> one, one, I don't think that we've been very good at answering, uh, you know, either in this country or around the world. I think let's start off with a, with a pretty surface definition. I think instructional coaching is a teacher and a person who acts as a coach talking about how to help the teachers teaching get better. Mm-hmm. I think like that's as loose a definition as I can find. And it's, it's essentially, I think the thing which makes it instructional coaching as opposed to um, other forms of professional development is that you're always talking about a pretty recent teaching event. So usually the, the coach goes to see the teacher teach and they meet pretty soon after that. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that probably makes it instructional coaching, as opposed to say old school formal observation every six weeks or every 12 weeks is the regularity of that taking place. So um, the conceived wisdom and a lot of the research points to this weekly increment. But uh, I know that quite a few people, for example, Jack, you mentioned mm-hmm. tend to try and space it out a bit more to try and make it so you know every two weeks or whatever it is but yeah a regular bit meeting and some regular that is that there you know can define it from the outside so if like space aliens were watching what was happening they'd be like oh yeah they're doing instructional coaching because i can see they they've this person's seen this person and they're sitting down together i think that probably that definition probably doesn't quite cut it mm-hmm. but uh, you know and that's probably we'll probably talk about some differing of opinion um, but like that will do for now, I think. No, certainly, because there are such different models and that you can use. And what, let's unpick that. And, and you spoke speak first about this idea of directive instructional coaching, which is probably more closely associated with the work of, of Paul Bambrick Santoyo and his Get Better, Faster and Leverage Leadership mm-hmm. and, and non-directive instructional coaching, which is probably more aligned with Jim Knight and his impact cycle. Am I correct? Yeah, I think I think that's a... You know, start off, you can split these two rights on instructional coaching apart by kind of, you know, yeah, how directive the coach is as opposed to how collaborative the coach is with the, with the teacher they're working with. So in terms of directive and directive, what do we, what do we mean by that? And you, you said how direct the teacher is with, with their, their coachee. So what does that look like in practice and what's the actual differences? So I, I've started to think that the directive, non-directive thing, despite the fact that I wrote about it, is a, is a bit of a, it, it, it's not quite a red herring, but I think that the, the right way to think about it, it, it's about how many mechanisms the coach is required to use to help the teacher make a change to their practice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with directive instructional coaching, you're probably working with a teacher that doesn't have a very concrete idea about a sensible uh, granular change that they can make to their teaching. And that's the first thing. So when we think of directive, the first thing we think is like, well, that coach has told that teacher exactly what to do about their practice. So the reason why the coach was required to use that mechanism is because 
the teacher didn't know next steps to take. You know, and I think that's often fairly common when, when we work with teachers, uh, you know, whether they're like quite new or less new is that they were busy teaching their lesson and were so involved in it that they, they're not quite sure like what happened sometimes. Um, but, you know, or, or what they can do in this instant to kind of to bring about improved student learning. So you, you, if you're working with a teacher and they're not quite sure, you, you are more directive because you're kind of supplying knowledge which they don't have. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, if we're working with a teacher who already has that knowledge. We don't we're not required to supply it as coaches. So if we work with a teacher and we see their lesson um, and we talk to them about it afterwards and as a result of our conversation, it's very clear the teacher has a really concrete, exact idea about what they need to do differently to, to, to help students learn more. You know, that kind of directive element of, you know, well, I think you should take this action isn't required to be there. The teacher can make a change without us supplying that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Go on. Carry on. Well, well I, th- I think you can basically say the same about all the other potential mechanisms in a coaching conversation, right? So modeling, um, you know, sometimes mo- the coach is required to model, sometimes they're not. And, and, you know, the answer to the, am I required to model question for a coach is like, does the teacher I'm working with already have a really robust mental model of the change or don't they? And if they don't, we, we must apply it. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise change can't happen and if they do have it we don't we're not required to uh, and i think that really like thinking about direct directive or non-directive like it could look like if i told someone how what to change and then i mold it for them i'm being really directive but actually what i think i'm doing is just supplying necessary knowledge mm-hmm. whereas if i'm being non-directive you know i'm still being a coach it's just the necessary knowledge is there I don't need to supply it. That's kind of my thinking about that. Yeah. You're more of the non-directive. You're more teasing that out of them through your your skillful use of questions and so on. And because as you mentioned there, they may already have that knowledge. You don't need to supply it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I like that distinction. And you also write about blank canvas instructional coaching. Um, what does what does that mean, and, and how is that different from the the models we spoke about there? So it's kind of like my initial definition of coaching that I gave you so so math so I guess the the, one of the most impressive pieces of research about instructional coaching that's come out in the last three years is Matt is crafts uh is it just craft anyway it's Matthew craft and I think there's another guy who and and it's it's you know essentially instructional coaching has a massive effect size compared with other forms of of professional development is is um is what the study says mm-hmm. and but as part of that study craft craft's definition of instructional coaching is like the space alien definition so it's like um you know two people sat together what one went to see the other's lesson they meet regularly uh, what is it like it's it's about the increment there's some other kind of definitions they tend to do some practice mm-hmm. But these are all things which like you can see from the outside. And I guess my issue of that's called blank canvas because you can essentially dress it up with some mechanisms or others. Mm-hmm. So you could have that, you could look at that and there could be modeling or no modeling. There could be kind of asking the teacher to analyze their practice and analyze the evidence or not. There could be planning together or not. There could be, you know, deliberate practice and feedback or there couldn't be. And, and, and I'm pretty convinced that you need a lot of those things in place for instructional coaching to have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And if, it's, if you're missing them, instructional coaching is unlikely to have the impact that we want. But my issue, I guess, with that blank definition is that it doesn't help us to decide or to identify, to put our finger on what makes good quality instructional coaching. So I'd like to come back to that, this idea of mechanisms that you spoke about and identifying what makes the, the good quality. But we spoke about already about the directive and non-directive and, and you spoke about whether teachers have the knowledge or don't have the knowledge and if they don't have it, we need to supply it. And in your in your posts, you spoke about the, this 
distinction between novice and expert teachers. But in a recent post you had there, change versus stasis one, you said that that's probably a, a, not a right way to think about it. Can I ask you to speak to this idea of novice and expert teachers and how that can influence our thinking in terms of working with teachers? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the good thing about getting to write blogs and and like thinking constantly about something is that you, I, I have tend to change my mind about it quite a bit. So when you read, when you dig into the educational research, like reading people like David Berliner, but you know, pretty much everyone, these ideas of novice and expert are pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. And they come from the kind of expertise research by, you know, people like Ericsson. So but the problem I think is that lots of this expertise research is, is done like on, on thing on domains such as like chess playing. So, you know, you can say someone is an expert chess player because they, they meet certain criteria for expertise. And um, like there's like seven, often seven criteria or seven stages that are required, right? And you can you can watch someone, you can like they can do this, 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 and this. They're an expert. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with teaching, well, there's a few problems with with, with the, this narrative in teaching. One I think is the kind of slightly like is that labeling in teaching it's never been that helpful. So, uh, you know, you, you get to a school and like there's the expert teachers and they don't often participate with the school's PD program. Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, and whereas the new teachers, the novices, like PD is mostly for these guys, right? This is kind of, I'm not saying this is the way to do it, but it's certainly the way it's been in like schools that I've been to and visited, etc. So, and then you have these teachers in the middle that have been teaching for a while and they should be experts, but they're doing the novice PD as well, you know? And then, and then you know, it's, exact, it's basically like saying that someone's like a three or a four teacher, you know, back when people were a bit more sadly obsessed with, you know, grading teachers via the offset framework. It's just, it's just not helpful. Mm -hmm. So that's my first, my first thing. The second is that, teaching is such a complex discipline, you know, that you can be an expert teacher in one quite discreet bit of teaching, but very much not be in another. Like I'm not an expert nursery teacher. An expert nursery teacher would not be able to do an expert job of teaching Macbeth with my old year tens, right? I might be, I love teaching Macbeth, but when I last taught Hamlet, I did a significantly less expert job. And it wasn't just in my conveying of the knowledge of Hamlet. I actually did a worse job of behavior management. My questioning got worse. Just cause like, you know, you, 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 it's quite a bit, teaching is specialized. You become very specialized. Like I wouldn't be, be able to be an expert maths teacher. Very much not an expert maths teacher. So, you know, I just, you know, an expert in what would be my question, you know, and, and if someone's teaching can can get you know can become less expert just because they inherit a harder class between one year and another, I just don't see what the purpose of these labels are. And I think that really we should be more focused on change. Teachers should all try to get better. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So like achieving that. For every teacher on a regular basis is this is like a big task, and I, and I think if we if we just have that idea in our head that you know every teacher's main focus and every school's main focus is be, should be to like help every teacher to improve their practice on a regular basis, I don't get where these labels fit into that picture anymore. I just I don't I don't see the point of them in our job, Darren. Like teaching learning lead or you know teacher educator, I don't get why we need we need these labels anymore. I, I totally understand that. I like what you're saying about it being such a complex domain. And I've read a few things that, you know, you could be an expert in behaviour management with year nine, but then when you get to year five, like you're thing there, then it's a totally different ballgame. And I think right. I have read some things that if you you could become an expert teacher of, of year four, yeah. it's your niche. And that's where yeah. you are. If you're taken out of that, then all the kind of building blocks just kind of fall apart, like your, what you mentioned there about teaching Hamlet as opposed to, to Macbeth. I suppose um, 
Josh, that I think people have found it quite helpful, you know, in terms of designing their own PD programs to adopt a one model approach. You know, we're going to use uh, the see it, name it, do it model. We're going to use the deliberate practice. We're going to use this. We're going to really define our action steps. So they're already predefined before they go into it. And yeah. maybe can I um, use that? Or we're going to use Jim Knight's approach and we're going to really spend, invest a time because this it's a huge time investment. Yeah. So being able to fit that around. And that's probably why you mentioned Jackson's two weekly more. It's probably how it's worked like that because of the, the people and so on. And you, you go on then, let's let's take that a little bit further because you mentioned this idea of, of responsive coaching. Uh, and I like you, you wrote a little thing about um, ensuring that instructional coaching is responsive. But what I want to ask is how then do we ensure that the, the porridge is just right every time what you write? So, yeah, I mean, another another like tough question, a tough thing for coaches to do. The, the beautiful thing about the structure, the surface structure of instructional coaching is that, you know, like if we could, you know, it would, I think the, to, to explain it another way, like 30 kids in a class probably isn't the ideal way for learning to happen. It's just that, you know, financial structures, et cetera, mean that like we probably can't afford a ratio of one-to-one teachers to students, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if we, but, but, but we could probably be a lot more responsive in the kind of Harry Fletcher Wood responsive teaching style of responsivity if we had smaller classes. Mm-hmm. Just because you can, you know, you can really figure out what convey knowledge to, to the kids in exactly the way that's most digestible for them. But we can't do it that way. Now, they've kind of got the luxury of like instructional coaching being a thing which like is inherently something which schools can afford to do. There's various ways of arranging it such that you know you can have every teacher working with a peer working with a partner in school doing coaching and suddenly you've arranged your school's pd so that you know you could everyone can be having the kind of bespoke thing that they need obviously like that's much much easier said than done (laughs) because then you have the the you've got to help coaches to be responsive in kind of two like metrics there's the kind of classic instructional coaching, Bambrook Centurio one, which is like, I'm going to watch Darren's lesson. I'm going to see him teach, watch him teach maths, tier nine. And I'm going to think like, okay, and this is the language of the Bambrook Santoyo, the kind of um, le- the leverage leadership school of coaching. I'm going to choose the, what is the highest leverage thing that Darren can do to make learning better in his class. So I've got to be responsive to kind of what him and his class need. And that, and that, but then according to Bambrook Santoyo, what I would do is I'd identify that thing and then I'd just use see it, name it, do it, or another protocol to deliver that, that coaching exactly the same way, you know, every time, whether I'm coaching you or coaching someone else. So, and then, you know, a Jim Knight per- person who liked this Jim Knight kind of more collaborative style would watch that conversation and be like, well, I, I think you chose the right step, but you delivered that feedback completely wrong. Right. So my feeling is that coaches need to figure out how to be responsive in another way as well. So we watch the lesson. We think like, OK, I think that Darren can make a change to his practice in, the, in you know, in this area. But then as a result of talking to you afterwards and my knowledge about you as a teacher and because we worked here before, I also know that you're very likely to kind of have a pretty good solution to that problem yourself. And so like. I'm then not going to give you a solution. And there's a few reasons for that, which I guess we can talk about why I think there's an argument to, to be non-directive if, if, if like if you're in the right circumstance, or I could be working with you down and, and I fight, figure out that like, not only do you not know the right solution to the problem you're facing in class, but maybe you don't even recognize that a solution is required. Maybe you, you've got um, kind of some thoughts about teaching, which conflict with you getting better in this area. Maybe you're not even motivated to get better. And so maybe my job as a coach isn't just like, hey, you should do, see it, like, like, let me show you what you need to do, see it, I'll model it for you. Let's do some planning, practice, buy. That's probably not enough to work with this Darren in our example. Mm-hmm. I probably need to do loads more work to help you make a change in that area. 
So I think we, we essentially need to help coaches have this kind of elastic way of coaching where depending on the teacher they're working with, they can be in a position to provide lots of support, lots of knowledge, lots of teaching mechanisms, or teacher incredibly knowledgeable, but you know, probably just needs help to practice. That's all I'm gonna do as a coach. So I think that's the kind of responsivity on the second metric, right? What does this teacher need to change? Okay, so would you then say, can I ask, then ask, like, if you were supposed to be coached on that model, the instructional coach or the coach who's coaching me, what would they need to know and be able to do? Because to be able to be responsive like that, I'm, I'm going to assume is quite a, a challenging thing to do and get right. Yeah, I think, I, th I think you know, I think it's going to make the... It, it, you know, it's going to make a coach's job potentially more difficult, but it's going to make the coach highly likely to be much more effective. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, there's no point, you know, coaching is expensive for schools in certain ways. Like you need these people, you need the time. It's really a commitment. And, you know, it's a commitment that it's affordable for schools, but like it is a commitment. And I, I just don't, I, I don't see the point in like having this potentially extraordinarily effective, like transformative way of helping teachers to improve. Cause we know that teachers often just get, don't get better for years and years and years at a time. Like we, we have at our fingertips, this, uh, this kind of potential to help teachers improve throughout their career. And I think all that's required is just, you know, also like, I think what schools should do is focus on training instructional coaches, you know, as well as training teachers. So basically I think schools should commit to um, building a team of in-house instructional coaches where that, you know, where they train them and then adding to this team constantly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like year one, it might be just, they have five coaches, but then the people those coaches coached will become coaches the year after. And so it's like, it's building this capacity. Like it's not something that people can just do you know, this diagnostic skill in like, what does this teacher need to improve? But if we can learn it with a class, then, you know, we can learn to do it when we're coaching a teacher. I like that. And now we're going to do it with a class then. So before I would like to dig a little bit deeper into to mechanisms then. And I like what you said there about, you know, coaching is expensive for schools, but I like that idea of that commitment because I think it's a more sustainable model for ensuring that every teacher gets that one-to-one -one support to continually get better and better. But we've already mentioned that, that teachers getting better is a hard thing to do. So would you say that, that using that coaching approach is probably one of the best ways to do it? Yeah, for sure. I, th I you know, the, the sad reality is that a lot of the stuff which like <laughs> I try to do in terms of making teachers better throughout my career, you know, doesn't work that well. You know, I tried, um, you know, TL, the, t the teacher learning community structure, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, like sometimes it worked and, and more, more often than not, like it didn't work how I want, you know, as well as I wanted. I tried teachers, you know, on their own and then getting into groups and talking about it, similar to TLC. I've tried like lesson study style. Uh, I've tried like practicing with larger groups of teachers. So they all practice at the same time. And, you know, all this stuff, you know, can work. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is that what teachers need is, is like very much, you know, because of the challenges of getting better, because there are these things about teaching, which make getting better very difficult. I think the reality is for, for, for us to assure teachers are making regular improvements. Like we do need to make teacher learning just a little bit more bespoke. Teachers need what they need at the time they need it or, or, or change is just, a little bit elusive, regular change. I like that. They need a little bit of support. I like this kind of at the time they need it because it's such interesting because, you know, although we, we spoke about the novice and experts and not being a useful one, what you kind of were concluded there was that, you know, if teachers just need to get better all the time, get better and better. I think you put in a, I think, you, I think it was in your Change versus Stasis blog, you put a, a brilliant quote 
from Dylan William about you know getting better. It's we do that. I can see if I can find it just to quote it accurately because it really was a, an interesting one. Um, this job you're doing is so hard that one lifetime isn't enough to master it. So every single one of you needs to accept the commitment to carry on improving our practice until we retire or die. That is the deal. I find that so interesting. And it kind of, it kind of marries up there with this idea for continual improvement and, and kind of helping teachers get better at the point that they need to get better. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's a good quote, isn't it? <laughs> it really, it really, there's so many good quotes associated with Dylan William, and that's just yeah. another one that really is. So we've spoken about this idea of responsive coaching. We've spoken about the difference between directive and, and non-directive and the different models, and you gave a wonderful example there. And I like where this thinking around, you know, meeting the needs of the teacher. You know, you can you can be coaching five different teachers, but you could be doing it when they all need five different things at five different ways. Mm-hmm. But you spoke earlier on about the mechanisms that make good instructional coaching. So to help us get a, a deeper understanding of, of that, could you, could you share with us what you think the, the, mechanisms, that are, the mechanisms that are required for, for good instructional coaching? Sure, yeah. So the first one I would call situation assessment or situation awareness. So um, I, I got I, to, as part of my project, I, I got stuck into kind of reading about, you know, high performers in other fields, like other fields which are very similar to teaching, where, you know, there's a huge amounts of sensory input to, you know, teachers are bombarded with information and like being a great teacher is about just like cutting through that, only looking at the most important bits, responding to them straight away. You know, it's so tough to be a great teacher. And it takes so many years to, you know, to do that if you just like wait for it to happen on its own. So I, so I dug into um, some stuff about, you know, people, people like policemen, firefighters, people in the military. There's some good research about like what makes high performers. And what came out of it was this, this thing called situation awareness or situation assessment. And that, first of all, is like the power to accurately perceive the environment, understand what you're perceiving and respond. Um, so I think like the first kind of mechanism of teaching is about um, helping teachers to around what to notice and what not to notice in particular classroom situations and, and, and like, and basically perceiving accurately. So, so off, so I would always start off a coaching conversation, um, like asking a teacher to just to tell me about a specific moment in the lesson. And the reason why I would do that is because it, that's a really interesting diagnostic for, for seeing whether you and the teacher had the same experience. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I imagine you've been there as well, like that, like, you know, sometimes you, you, you say like, well, you know, let's talk about, you know, where this happened and the teacher like, it gives you such a clear and accurate picture of exactly what happened, you know, what they should have done. And, and like, that is, su- you know, and, that's such a good indicator of, you know, the kind of coaching you're going to be required to do. Mm-hmm. And there's other times where you say that and, and you, know, you work with a teacher and they're like, oh, yeah, I really think that I made the change effectively from last week. You know, everything went perfectly. And then you're like, I'm not, I'm not sure about whether you're, you know, you, you're seeing some of the stuff which like was happening. Whereas it's easy for the coach. They, they don't have to, they don't have to worry about the lesson, right? They're just sat there, you know, the perfect, th- you know, third pair, of, second pair of eyes or whatever. So, and in that instance, like that teacher is not going to be able to change unless we help them to be, to more accurately perceive the, the cues that matter. Um, so, you know, you know, a lot of stuff with behavior management, like if you can't see the behavior you're going to, if you're not noticing the behavior you need to manage, you can't manage it. So I could help about dealing with disruptive students or something but then you go into your class and you just do the same old teaching because you know we didn't go to the root cause so that's my first mechanism is right helping teachers to see better in the classroom definitely i like how that going by what we said earlier on about whether you need to give them the knowledge or whether you need to take can i trust that they have them i suppose that first question of asking them to share what they thought about the transition from 
uh, guided practice to independent practice or the yeah. explanation into a turn and talk and so on like that yeah. transition I suppose that will help you kind of instantly decide where you want to go next right exactly exactly that's exactly it, it it's like you can picture a kind of like a like a like a tube map and you ask this question you may have to go down you know the victoria line but you, but you might but you could also just like not get on the victoria line go down the central line and that's depending on what the teacher says to you um and that's very much how like, i'm designing this responsive coaching protocol at the moment and it's all like a, a diagnostic question coaching moves that a coach would use depending on the answer to that question mm -hmm. um so yes yeah, so that's the first one the second kind of big mechanism is around goal setting and motivation so um as mary kennedy says that you know teachers that are not motivated to change not going to change no matter how much effort work you and the, you or the school put into them you know it's like uh, the ultimate kind of like thing which is going to stop change is teacher motivation so I, so another vital thing that the coach needs to do is to diagnose, you know, what the teacher wants and think about, think really hard about whether that is, you know, that coheres with what the coach thinks is best. If it's, if it's not, if it doesn't, the coach either needs to change what they want or help the teacher to change what they want, you know, and until you've managed to do that, you know, there's no point really in moving to the move again, you know, in my career as a coach, there's times when I've, you know, gone down the pretty quick see Bambrook Santoyo, just like do this differently. Let's do some practice. You know, the teacher doesn't change. They don't change because you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I fundamentally don't think that they really wanted to. They have a different idea about what works. And without knowing that you can't bring the two views into line with each other. Um, then like relatedly, you also have to worry about what ideas, what knowledge the teacher has in that area. So my third big kind of mechanism group is around developing insights. So, um, you know, if, if a teacher, um, has an idea, which really conflicts with the change you're, that you're trying to help them make the change isn't going to happen yeah. for example you know um a really classic one which certainly i had was like working on behavior management is you're working with a teacher and you're like well let's you know help you manage this class a bit more effectively but you know but ultimately like their view of the students at the time is underpinned by like ideas that like these students are never going to learn or you know something like that you know certainly in my early career i had classes and i was just like was so fed up with the behavior that I, I started blaming the students for it. Mm. Right. And we've probably both been there. <laughs> so, you know, and, and again, like that's a fundamental insight which the teacher holds. And unless you like figure out that it's there and then help to replace it with a kind of a more constructive view, you know, change is going to be difficult yeah, to achieve. Not. Yeah. Likewise, like you can't change, use an action step successfully around like questioning or around assessment for learning if you don't understand like the right time to use it and the right purpose to use it for, um, you know, what theory of learning underpins it. So again, like as a coach, you know, our job is also to help teachers kind of understand the overarching purpose for the actions that underpin them. And, you know, and those things are vital because, because what can happen if we don't is that a teacher, we, we share, and this is a Mary Kennedy thing, is that we give a teacher a step to use um, and a really good example i asked on twitter about good examples of misuse of action steps so a really good example is like doug lamov's cold call right so um cold call is about cognitive accountability right the, you know the purpose of using cold call is that it's kind of a, a lever to control something invisible which is student thought by asking the question then using the name uh, like second we're essentially holding students accountable for thinking some stuff and by doing that we're essentially holding them accountable for learning because we know that you know thinking is, is the site of learning or whatever it is now if we don't explain that to a teacher and they don't know then 
you give a teacher an action step, like, you know, use cold call, here's how, right? And then what can often happen is that te um, teachers use cold call as kind of like a gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're like, I, um, this was a great, this was shared by a guy called Robert you know, from Australia that I chat to sometimes. You know, it's like, oh, um, you know, uh, how does Lady Macbeth manipulate Macbeth in this scene? Waiting, waiting, waiting. He'd be like, I'm going to go to Jamie because he's clearly not listening. You know, and, and that like, not only is that like not going to work because <laughs> Jamie uh, hasn't thought of the answer. And you, but also like it, it fundamentally like disturbs the point of cold call, which is about motivating students to think and participate. It's going to make students less rather than more likely to think in the long term. And, and again, like if we just go like, here's the move, this is how the move looks, do the move, see you next week. We risk, you know, teachers not having the insights required to use the move correctly. Like we're not building these kind of adaptive teachers that can use the steps we give them at the right times, but not at the wrong times and in different scenarios. So that'd be my third mechanism is this kind of helping the teacher develop the insight which like surrounds the step. Um, shall I carry on? Yes, please do. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. I really understand that like, you need to know why you would cook one. I think that was a great example to give. It'd be the same with um, a, a number of other things, you know, if you're doing live marking, if you're just ticking as you go without kind of yeah. with the students why you're doing that and what you're looking at. You know, I, I, right. I remember reading about a, a dot round and sharing it with a colleague and then they just went, I went around and put dots, but the children did nothing with the dots. Right, right. So explain to the students why you are doing that. And if you do that, this is what you want them to do. Right. So I, I, I see it kind of happening around that, giving them that why and the purpose behind it before you go and explore and, and model or practice it. Exactly, exactly. And at the same time, though, you know, thinking back where we've got so far, like we diagnosed whether the teacher needs support with situation assessment. They don't. We diagnose whether... You know, this teacher is motivated to make a change in this area of their practice. They are, you know, we then going to think like, well, do you know, does this teacher really understand how learning works in this area of their practice? You know, we ask this insight question, you know, they maybe they do, in which case, you know, we can, God, what an efficient coaching conversation. We ask three diagnostic questions or maybe a few more, you know, we're, we're determining that, that we're working with a teacher that knows enough stuff to change. The next step would be like, do they actually know what change it is, exactly what change to make? You know, we know how complex a domain teaching is. We know how much teachers have to think about and focus on. If we're asking teachers to make giant big changes to their practice all in one go, you know, they're not gonna be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So whether we're working with an e expert or a novice, change must be, I think that's kind of expertise invariant. You know, it's not like I would work, come to your school and work with you, you know, I'm, I'm like a really experienced expert and I'd suddenly be like, okay, well, you need to improve your questioning. You know, you're too busy <laughs> thinking about other stuff to, to know, to like split that apart. I'd, we'd still need to be granular with you just as we, we need to be granular. Does the teacher know which, what step to take to achieve this goal, this goal of changing something about their teaching? So we'd ask a teacher, you know, pretty much like, well, what do, you, what do you think you can do, you know, the next action to take to, to start addressing this issue? Again, the teacher may have a really clear and precise mental model about this micro change. Great. I don't even need to give them a step. Probably more likely, I do need to. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, what do we need to do? Like, is just saying an action step enough? You know, is just saying knowledge to students enough? You know, the reality is probably no. You know, to learning is about transforming knowledge, taking it from outside to inside, you know? Like, so we have to do these things which help a teacher to kind of internalize the steps we give them. And that's essentially like using modeling. So I would, you know, uh, some some moves or mechanisms inside this setting steps is like model the step, break the step down into like its mini component parts. What's the success criteria of doing it really well? 
I then might like narrate my model. So I might narrate kind of on my thinking about, well, I th if I was using this step, I'd be thinking about this. I might be looking for student X and student Y to respond in this way. This kind of, you know, think aloud exactly like we do when we do modeling when we're teaching. Mm -hmm. um, then I'm probably gonna ask loads of questions about the model. So I might ask like the teacher to compare the model with what we talked about happened in their classroom. I might ask the teacher to think through like which of the, the criteria of the step are kind of most important for them to think about. Uh, I might ask the teacher to kind of think about how that step's going to impact on their students or how they might need to adapt it for their class. And all these things, like what they're, they're kind of different coaching questions, but all they're really doing is getting a teacher to take something which is outside their head mm -hmm. and fit it in with something which they know about, which is like their class, their lesson, their context. And again, I might need to do all the one, God, need to do this whole big list of moves to help the teacher do that. We might need to just do two or three things and we have like a, you know, it just depends again on who I'm working with. Definitely yeah, that, that responsiveness. And, and then one thing we've not discussed is that I had a, a, a one thing that I've, explored quite a bit in the podcast this idea of practice and you mentioned it earlier so in terms of if you're modeling and, and asking lots of questions about the model and you've shared a success criteria for it for a certain teaching move for you know let's say show call or something like that the steps that they would take to do that effectively the culture they would need would you do would you do, do some practice around that i mean i've spoken to um, a few people around deliberate practice on the podcast, Catherine Morgan and, and uh, Sarah Cottingham and, and Dan Hudson spoke a bit about practice and I found that quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the fifth, the fifth and final like part of the coaching conversation, and it always comes at the end for a few reasons we'll talk about is habit building with like deliberate practice. Now, this is the kind of interesting one because I think that this isn't responsive. So we've gone... Do you have situation awareness? Do I need to do some coaching moves here? Yes or no? Do, do you have a goal to change this area? Do I need to do some coaching moves here? Yes or no? Do you have the insights you might need to change about your class or the theory of learning? Yes or no? And now, do you have the step knowledge you need to change? Yes or no? Now, let's say that you had all that knowledge. So you're like, I know what I need to do. I saw it. I know what action I need to take. Like, you know, so... But I'd be like, brilliant. This, this is an easy coaching conversation. <laughs> but, but no matter what, we are going to need to do some deliberate practice together. And, 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 and like motivation for this comes from some really good research, which Hobbes and Sims did recently around, mm -hmm. uh, you know, habits being a kind of big barrier to teacher change. And I talk a, a bit about it in my stasis and change paper. But like, the more experienced the teacher is, the more likely they are to have vets which are going to make change difficult for them. And so how do we get past that? We need to do deliberate practice whereby we take out a habit, put another one in, you know? And so, and again, so there's like a list of specific moves which, um, which you would, you know, which a coach can do to make deliberate practice really effective. But um, I think actually the most interesting thing to say about deliberate practice is actually like what you as a coach need to do before, um, before you do deliberate practice. So I think like people, you know, the idea of like multiple rounds of practice with feedback is probably not that alien. Um, although it's quite difficult and, and, and like, it's not hard to get, it's not that super easy to get right. But so what I see sometimes in schools is like this contextless practice. And I think when people see that, it can, it can make teaching look like something which there isn't value in practicing. And certainly some people do think that like, you know, teaching just isn't something that we can practice. Um, so I'll give you an example, which I've actually seen saw in a school. So we'll go for another Lamov move, which is like wait time. Right. So it's kind of like cold call, but it's like ask a question, give students lots of thinking time. Um, and so I saw a coach give, it was like set that as an action step and then was like, okay, we're going to do some practice, Darren. 
I want you to write to write down five questions to ask me about what I ate yesterday. Right. You know, and, I, in the, and then I'd be like, OK, let's practice action. Darren, ask me my first question, um, but use wait time. Right. So you'd be like, OK, um, what did you have for breakfast? Josh, you know, I, I was watching. I was like, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think that this you know, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> you know, it's sort of embarrassing, <laughs> awkward, you know, it, it's, but like, and that's a bad, and like, you know, people feel like practice is awkward at the best of times, so you don't need more help to like um, make it feel more awkward, but it, it may doesn't work because it's completely decontextualized. Mm-hmm. And so now let's replace this with like a slightly different example of how we'd prepare to do that. So I'd be like, okay, Dan, I want you to do wait time. Let's open up your maths lesson for the same class tomorrow. Where's the key moment where you will be asking questions? What knowledge are you asking questions about? Uh, okay, great. Let's script the five questions you're going to ask. Mm-hmm. Right? So you, and like, which students are you going to ask them to? All this planning. And then it'd be like, okay, we're now going to rehearse that questioning sequence. And I'm going to give you feedback on your use of wait time. And for me, like that's quite simple tweak turned. And then we could do tons of like, you know, me feeding back to you and tweaking the mood. But like that simple tweak of just like planning it in the context of a real lesson, no matter what action step you're doing, for me is the most fundamental thing that a coach can do with a teacher to make deliberate practice work and to help them make a change. No, definitely that switch from this kind of out of context practice that is a bit kind of uncomfortable and, and as you said, mentioned, maybe a bit humiliating to tomorrow's lesson. These are the five questions I'm going to ask. Let's practice them. So you're building that habit so that when you arrive in tomorrow's lesson, you're prepared, you're ready and you're good to go. And Yeah, like it, it, just, it moves from just kind of play acting which we probably both know like practice as a teacher can feel a bit like, mm-hmm. you know, this like we're, we're playing as teachers. It moves away from that to like, I'm going to help you do a really good job of teaching this specific part of your lesson tomorrow, which you're going to teach anyway, you know, and it certainly transformed my willingness to practice when, when I just like the, a great coach I had was just like made it completely concrete for me. It just felt so useful. It's like I, we're rehearsing a lesson I'm going to be teaching. I'm obviously going to do a better job of that tomorrow. And, and, and it, li- it makes it so much more likely the change is going to be made because we're properly cueing it. You know, it's, it, we're linking that action step up to loads of specific cues in the teacher's lesson. The teacher's then going to teach that lesson. They're going to be cued to perform that action. Change is likely to take place. Yeah, I like that. Properly cueing it to, to perform that action tomorrow. It makes it real time and, and brings that that process to life. So just to, to recap your, your, I think you called it your responsive coaching protocol. Is that right? Yeah. So you start with situation awareness and assessment and, and ask, and I like that kind of example you gave about ask a teacher to tell them about a specific moment because that will help you decide whether you're going to be directive or non-directive. Mm-hmm. Second one was goal setting and motivation. You know, do they want to improve and do they or do they have that motivation? Because I think we know that if if they're just not they don't want to improve, it's going to be very difficult to get them to improve. Third was developing that insight. So, do they understand the, the theory of, of learning or do they understand the the kind of overarching principle of what they're aiming to do? Uh, four, I've got. Do they know exactly what change to make? Mm-hmm. And then five was that habit building. I like how, how it's called habit building. And, and you say that number five is always going to happen. Whether you're mm-hmm. whether you're you're flying through the first four, you're still going to do some habit building and practice at the end. But that could come from you as the coach telling them the action step they need, or it yeah. could come from the teacher saying, I think this is the action step we need to work on. But regardless yeah. of how you come to it, you still build that habit. It, exa- exactly, exactly. We, you, you know, it could be, it's very, it would feel like very different coaching. You know, it, it would feel, but, but actually like it is the same thing. It's just about like who has, who has the information. 
and, and you know, and it's just like um, it's just like teaching a class. Like I would, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working with my, you know, my A level students, you know, and we're doing something really familiar, and they've studied it before. Like I'm not going to need to do all this mass, this setup. Like we can just go straight for, you know, we can just go straight for writing the essay sometimes, you know. But you know, if I'm teaching year seven. <laughs> You know, I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to do a lot more work on the way to get there. And you know, the reality of learning is how much we can learn and how quickly is dependent on what resources we already have. It's not different for adults. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, the same. Yeah. For I like that distinction. I think in, in, a, in an older Harry Fletcher Wood blog, he explores the idea of teacher learning being like student learning, and that's came up quite a few times in this discussion and, and and I'm starting to really understand that that myself so thanks for making that that distinction so we've explored um, instructional coaching from directive to non-directive blank canvas this uh, distinction between novice and expert teachers and how that's not particularly helpful we want all to always to get better as Dillian Williams says until we retire or die <laughs> which I thought was Brilliant. And then we've spoken about this responsive coaching to make sure that as you as you write in one of the blogs, the porridge is just right every time. And we've explored that responsive coaching protocol. And, and I like how that kind of fits for whether the teacher knows or whether the teacher doesn't know in, in a model. And I like how you finish that with, with this idea of habit building. And like you said, taking the old habit out and putting the new habit in. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of the interview section. I've got a, a quick fire round to, to finish off, Josh, um, if you're up for that. But before we do that, if someone listening wants to find out a little bit more about instructional coaching and, of course, powerful action steps, um, how do they go about doing that? So want to find more about instructional coaching, there's some things I would suggest that you have a look at. I would suggest you read Get Better Faster by Paul Bambrick Santoyo. Uh, and just because it's pretty chunky, I would suggest that you read pages one to 80 in one go, and then you can dig into the rest of the book as you need it. I would suggest you read The Impact Cycle by Jim Knight. Um, for, for a, a, you know, he's just a massive expert, and it gives you this sense of kind of the other side of instructional coaching, mm -hmm. which is a bit more collaborative. Um, you can have a look at some of my blogs. Uh, I blog at... Um, on the Step Lab site. So if you go to www.steplab.co, there's a little thing which says blog in the corner and you can click that. And there's some stuff I've written about instructional coaching. Um, and then if you wanted to find out about kind of how we help schools to run um, good instructional coaching programs, that's what I do now. Instructional coaching, as you it might have come out in this talk, is hard important but hard to get right and we think that there's a lot of value in kind of supporting and scaffolding the coaching process mm -hmm. as coaches develop in expertise so we we scaffold the, the coach knowledge through giving them like this big bank of action steps and we also scaffold the mechanisms the coach uses by um, directing them to kind of follow a responsive coaching process and, um, and then when the coach develops in their expertise, they can turn some of that scaffolding off for themselves. Um, and so that, again, you can go on to www.steplab.co and um, you can find out about it there. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Um, and before we go, how do people get in touch with, with you? Can they get in touch with you through the website? And how do they interact with you or on social media? Oh, yes. I always forget to do that one. So you talk at, at Josh underscore CPD. At Josh underscore CPD. Um, and that's probably the best place. Or they can get in touch with me by sending me a little message from my website as well. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much for, for exploring instructional coaching in such depth with me through the podcast. So now a little quick fire round for you if you're ready. ready. So three questions. Um, just share your thinking on them. And question number one, Josh, is what are you reading currently? I'm currently reading uh, a book called The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath, who wrote a like, great, you know, probably you probably read Make It Stick, mm -hmm. which is like just a cracker about um, memory. So this is like, um, how do we design learning so that um, 
you know, as part of it, people have these kind of like um, massive defining moments which they remember for the rest of their lives. So, so I've only, I've read so far, I've only read the first 65 pages, which I read this morning, but their point is like schools, a lot of like practice, 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 practice without ever like doing a big event, <laughs> you know, like without doing this big memorable thing as a result, which I kind of agree with. And so their thing is like, well, of course you need to do loads of practice and like people don't often remember being at school, but you need to also figure out how to, to kind of build in these kind of like memorable moments, which, which like, take it above the level of the normal classroom and things which kids will remember the rest of their lives as well. Um, so I'm, I'm loving that. So it's been like one of the best things I've read in ages. So I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Definitely. I, I like, I like that idea. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, um, second one, uh, what is your current professional development focus? Well, I'm not in the classroom at the moment. So like I don't have a, a teaching PD focus. I can tell you what I'm currently trying to teach myself about. Um, so I'm, 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 re I'm just about to get onto the insights chapter of uh, this kind of book project, which I work, this responsive coaching book project. And I like, that's why I'm reading the power of moments. I don't know as, as much as I should about like the ways to help teachers really learn a new idea. You know, like how do you tell, you know, oh, you know, the working memories has a limited capacity. Like, how do you take that like fairly dry idea and give it to teachers in a way that like it will actually color the way that they understand and do their job? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure question by doing lots of reading. I don't, I could, not gonna lie and say I've cracked it, but <laughs> but I'll hopefully get there. Yeah, and so hopefully, hopefully the the light bulb moment comes for you for you soon. Your readers. So thank you very much for sharing that. And. Uh, Last last question. Of course, you're not in the classroom, but once a teacher, always a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. What do you love most about being a teacher and teaching? So, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that so I go into schools every Friday now, basically to kind of give myself back some of what I've lost. Um, and the thing I, I like, I really figure, find that I miss is, is actually like, I really love informal conversation with students, like either as part of the lesson or outside learning and just chat with them about kind of like what you know in an informal way basically I miss like pastoral work <laughs> you know I, I basically miss chatting with kids like you know I, I obviously love teaching and, and miss and like being an English teacher but it's not what I massively miss it's just like conversation informal conversations with students uh it, it was a massive part of why I like to do the job and and uh, and there's something that I'd like to get back. So yeah, and that that relationship building that, that happens over, over time and the, the little conversations that really drive up that relationship. Now, thank yeah. you for sharing that. And um, that brings us to the end of the of the episode. Thanks so much, Josh, for giving up your time on a, on a Monday evening and sharing so wonderfully your insights around instructional coaching. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.